0: God's word says, and behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, "O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to this house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is a sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of the God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand dried up, which he stretched out against him. Dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given By the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And this is the section we'll be looking at today, beginning of verse 7. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God had come, from, who came from Judah, had gone. And he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it is said to me by the word of the Lord... You shall neither eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but you have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord that was spoken to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went out and found the body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he'd buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Well, as many of you know, recently my family went on a vacation and in one place we were at the Grand Canyon. And as we were overlooking, we heard the strangest noise. And I thought, that must be a large swarm of bees nearby, until we saw a drone flying up and down the canyon walls. Well, signs throughout that park and every national park clearly say no drones are allowed. But that person just didn't care. What do you make of commands and warnings? Some of you may own a vehicle like me that a light comes on and you take it to the mechanic and he goes, nothing's wrong. And so you just drive with a warning light all the time, and someone else gets in your car and you go, eh, don't worry about it. It's okay. And you see warning lights, and you just don't care. We could probably all think of some warnings that are just too obvious to be stated. These are all real warnings on packages. Like, you shouldn't grab the wrong end of a chainsaw. You shouldn't light a match to check the fuel in your jet ski. You shouldn't blow dry your hair while you're sleeping. You shouldn't drive with your sunshield in place. And lastly, your egg carton may contain eggs. Those are so dumb. Oh, why do they even have these warnings? And then some are so dumb that we just don't even pay attention at all. Staples, the company that sells Office products, sold a letter opener with a warning saying Saf- safety goggles are recommended. I'm assuming every single person just said not listening to this recommendation of warning. Kellogg sold a cereal bowl that warned, only appropriate for ages 8 and older. Again, I'm sure many just said, I'm not even going to listen to that warning. That's dumb. But what does God think about his warnings? Are they like lights on our car? Or like warnings, ah, you know, that's just dumb. I know better. I can do this. Well, as Westerners, we assume, we all have this assumption, God is love. And in that assumption, we think, well, God's just going to forgive. He's just going to be gracious. Yes, you know, people like Hitler, Stalin, yes, God's going to judge them. But most of us, we just have to, we're not perfect. God forgives. It's no big deal. So, you know, don't worry. Obedience, yeah, you should obey. But sometimes, you know, you just, you just got to do this. Well, the problem is, when people say this, they then also start to say, and if you encourage obedience, you're a legalist. You are a Pharisee. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen through 20 He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He then concludes, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, And teaches others to do the same. Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them. And teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you. Unless your righteousness. Exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is clearly stating. Obedience is a necessity. And we see that even this morning in our story. That we must obey the word of god if you have a bulletin you can see on the back an outline of what's going on in this story first in verses 7 through 10 we see the clarity of god's word then tragically we see in verses 11 through 19 the disobeying of god's word that then tells the judgment of breaking god's word verses 20 through 25 and then lastly 26 through 32 the fulfillment of god's word but first We have to remember the context. I read the passage before you where Jeroboam, the king of Israel in the north, had created these false idols. He created these two golden calves and told Israel, these are your gods, O Israel. And so this prophet came up from Judah and said by the word of God, these will be torn down. And then Jeroboam tried to arrest this man. He said, seize him. And God withered his hand. And then Jeroboam did what he should have done in the beginning. He Entreated the Lord. He cried out for mercy and God restored his hand. And so now, where we are today, Jeroboam invites this prophet. He says, Come to my house today. Come, let me give you a reward. Now, you have to imagine for the prophet, this was probably a great invitation. He just got invited to the king's palace. I mean, surely as he was walking up there, he was a little nervous about how this is going to go. I mean, He's going up to the ruler of a nation and going to rebuke him. And probably he's emotional. He's physically exhausted. And now he's going to get to go in the palace. He's going to get fine cuisine and a reward. And not only that, he's going to have the ear of the king. Isn't this what a prophet wants to be able to speak to the king and let him know how to obey God? I mean, this seems perfect, except for one thing. God said, do not eat anything. Do not drink anything and do not return the way you came. It's very important to understand this passage that this message was very clear. He says it very clearly, verse 8, 9. It comes up several times. And to understand the story, we really have to grasp the clarity of God's word. And because the prophet grasped it, he didn't go to the king's house, but he went home another way. You know, the prophet didn't receive a mumbled message. It didn't need to be decoded. He clearly heard God speak, and the question before him is, will I now obey the message? New opportunities, rewards, all those don't matter. What he's called to is steadfast adherence. And that's an issue before us today. Today today also, is God's word clear? You know, many people will... Say, no, it's not. And they will say, you need all these things. But to know the basic message of the Bible, you don't need postgraduate degrees in ancient cultures. You don't need the ability to read Greek and Hebrew. You don't need to know the intricacies of hermeneutics to know the basic message of the Bible. Now, all of those things can be beneficial, and I spend a lot of time and money trying to get some of those because they can be beneficial to understanding Deeper, but it doesn't take a PhD to understand what it means that you shall have no other gods before me or you shall not steal. Hmm. It's simple, it's very clear. You don't need to get a course to understand that you were created, that you have sinned, and yet God sent his Son to die for you. Anyone, even if they can't read, can understand that basic message. Everyone can understand that it's by grace alone that you are saved. You don't need all of these other things. And yet many people still challenge whether Christianity is clear or if Christianity is the clear truth. Some will even claim if people say, like I am this morning, that Christianity is the clear truth, that that's arrogant, that that will lead to oppression. And it's just wrong because no one can know the whole truth, we're told. You may have heard the analogy that religions or philosophies are basically like six blind men who come to an elephant. And the blind men come up, and they start feeling the elephant. And the first one, he feels a leg. And he goes, oh, I know what this is. This is a tree. And another blind man goes, no, 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 because he's feeling the trunk. And he goes, no, we we found a snake. And yet another one has grabbed the ear, and he says, well, y'all are wrong. This is a fan. And all of them are giving their perspectives, and we're told, well, this is what religions are like. You know, none of those men were wrong. They just didn't have the whole thing. And so the message is conveyed, yes, Christianity is good. It has some elements of truth in it, but it's not clear on the whole truth. Rather, what you need to do is see what Christianity has given us, so we're told, and then listen to what our Buddhist friends have gleaned, or what our secular friends have gleaned, or what our Muslim friends have gleaned. And yet you may have noted or may have heard one significant problem with that analogy and mindset. And that is, have you noticed who's not blind? You. The person who's telling this story is saying, all of y'all are blind, but I can see the whole elephant. And I can tell that all of y'all don't see the whole elephant. So what you need to realize is true is that all of y'all don't know the truth, but actually I know the truth. Now they don't say that, But if you think about what the analogy is conveying, that's what it's saying. The only truth is that all truths are equally valid. That is just as much a claim for the truth as the others. And so the analogy breaks down. But more than that, as Kevin DeYoung notes, the analogy really breaks down if the elephant speaks. If the blind men come up and start to say their various things, and they go, oh, yes, it's a tree. And the elephant says, I'm an elephant. And he goes, no, no you're a tree. And he goes, "No, I just told you I'm an elephant." No, no, no. I know you're a tree. Well, that's not humility. That's arrogance. And if God has clearly spoken and he has, for us to say, "Well, yeah, yeah, there's there's many options." That's not humility. That is to contradict the word of God. And so God has clearly spoken to us. His word is not a mystery. It's not a code to be broken. You don't need to take a journey to some Tibetan monk. You just need to listen. And Jesus believed this. We're not going to read through all the Gospels, but you could read any of the Gospels. And notice how many times Jesus gets in a debate with someone. And he ends the debate by saying, it is written. And he assumes by clearly stating a verse. They're going to understand. He doesn't say it is written, and if you go study and get a master's degree, you could then understand what that verse was saying. He's saying it's written. God's word is clear. You can understand it. The question though is, will we we obey it? And yet while we saw the prophet started well, we now have the second section, verses 11 through 19, where he'll make a sad turn and he will disobey God's word. The story takes a new twist because in verse 11 we hear this old prophet in Bethel now any questions you might have or that I have like okay is this prophet legitimate like why wasn't he there also condemning or why is he lying well we're not told but he hears from his sons about this prophet from Judah he has his sons mount his donkey he goes out after him and he finds them under a tree and he says are you the prophet from Judah yes well come home with me let's eat and what does the prophet of to say? No, I can't do that. God gave me a message. No eating anything. No drinking anything. Don't return the same way. But then the to- story twists. Because the prophet from Bethel says, Ah, I'm a prophet too. And I-, I got a word from the Lord. And the word of the Lord said, Come back with me and eat. And so what does the prophet do? He goes back with him. We'll see. But we have to recognize the very clear statement in verse 18, the end of verse 18, but he lied to him. Now again, we're not told why the prophet from Bethel would make this lie, but it makes the story clear what is going on. The issue is, will the prophet from Judah be faithful to God's clear word? Because, If you look at everything before this, he had no doubt what God's word says. He has said it clearly two times. He clearly understood it. And he should have known, Numbers 23, 19, this was already written, that declares God is not a man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Yes, you can read some stories in the Old Testament where God sends a prophet with judgment, and then he says these people will perish and then the people repent and god relents did god change his mind well no in each of those stories it was clear god was sending the prophet of judgment with the expectation that if they repented he would relent god is not a man that he should lie or change his mind tragically though this prophet bought the lie and he returns to eat and drink You i sure some of us are still wavering but was he really at fault i mean he was lied to i mean that angel i mean you got a message from an angel i mean you got to believe that and i bet you I mean, he was an old man he's probably sweet he's kind he's riding a little dog he's so cute and i mean come on he's a prophet too i gotta listen to him maybe i heard wrong the apostle paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia because by their actions, some of them had turned from the gospel. In Galatians 1.8, he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, I don't know if the Apostle Paul got the angel from heaven from this story or not, but the point is still there that nothing should cause us to deviate from God's clear word. The prophet from Judah should have had no question that God had already said, don't do it. So this man was lying. Nothing should alter him from following God's clear word. And so that is for us today too. It doesn't matter if you feel like you had an angel visit you. We must stick to God's word and not be led astray. We can't hide behind, well, you know, my pastor told me this was true, or... I read this professor who really knows a lot about the Bible, and he said this was true. Or this famous Christian on television said this was true. The question is, does God's word say it is true? We should be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11, which it says of them, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were So, the foundation for knowing all truth is God's word. The standard is not, does it seem right to you? Or, how does this make you feel? It's not an experience. It's not a feeling. It's not a public opinion poll. It's not being on the supposed right side of history. Even if a person has been touched by an angel or gone to heaven, that does not give their message extra credence if it goes against the Word of God. you know The Spirit of God who inspired this is not going to inspire you to do something that's contrary to what's in this. And yet, sadly, time and again, many of us have talked with other Christians who say, well, I'm going to do fill-in-the-blank, which is a clear sin, and you go, well, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't do that, and they go, well, I just really feel like God's leading me to do this. Well, God will never lead you to do something contrary to to what is in his word thus to be real clear you shouldn't follow me you shouldn't follow keith you shouldn't follow this church if we come up and we say or in private conversation we say something to you that is against god's word you the authority in this church is god's word it's christ it is not us and we should submit to this and if we are not teaching it correctly you should rebuke us now of course you should do that lovingly and kindly Uh, You don't necessarily need to correct every mistake I make in a sermon or it will be popping up like whack-a-mole all service. But when we're leading people into sin, when we're teaching falsehoods about God, you need to rebuke us. And if we dig in, then you should encourage yourself and others. We need to go. This church is no longer teaching the truth. Now, yes, we could talk about minor issues where Christians can disagree. And I know all those things. And yet, sadly, I more and more hear people buying into the spirit of the age of, well, there's lots of views on that. Well, Christians have debated that for lots of years. Well, yes, on some minor issues, we can say that. But there are some things where it is clear. You you don't have to delve into some Greek nuance when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except... Through me. That's very clear. Jesus is either right, and then we need to say everyone who contradicts that is wrong, or Jesus is lying. Let's just be honest. If Jesus is wrong, then all of this is wrong. But we can't take this, well, yeah, that's your view. Well, no, Jesus was pretty clear. The way, the truth, the life, no other way. He then makes it negative. No other way except through me. So all of us need wisdom to Test the spirits to see if a pastor, a friend, what's on TV in a book, is this truly from God? And we check it by the word of God. And we need to notice something. Did you notice what caused this prophet of Judah to fall? It wasn't the pressure of what we might say today, the world. He stood before the greatest king that he could have. He was rock solid. He was committed. He did not waver one inch. And yet then when he got with God's people and he heard a false message, he began to waver. And sadly today, many people are very faithful to not conform to the world. But then when they turn on the so-called Christian channel or read so-called Christian books, they're led astray by so-called Christians. Yet while that prophet from Bethel first lied about God speaking to him, we're now going to see in verses 20 through 20 through 5, He now does get a clear word from God. And we see the judgment for breaking God's word. So they go back in verse 20. They're eating and he gets this message. And there's this parallel because it then says in verse 21, he cried out against the man of God from Judah. Well, that's the exact same language from verse 2. What's going on in verse 2? That's when the prophet is crying out against Jeroboam. So he's now having happened to him. What he had to do to Jeroboam, rebuke him for failing to obey God's word. And the prophet from Bethel says from God that since he didn't guard the Lord's command, since he didn't go back without eating anything, without drinking anything, or going a different way, there will be a strong punishment. He will not be buried in the tomb of his fathers. And the Bible condenses these stories. Surely after this, the conversation went something like, why did you lie to me? Do you think I can be forgiven? Like, well, what's going on? But we're not given that. All we're told next is he got on the prophet's donkey and he began to go home. And when he begins to go home, a lion attacks and kills him. And then shockingly, the lion threw his body on the ground, but then he doesn't eat it. And then he sits there next to the donkey, and they both guard, so to speak, the dead prophet. Now, the non-munching lion, the standing donkey, they could show us several things, and we'll look at another later, but I think one main thing here is they're pointing a sharp contrast between them and the prophet. Whereas the prophet refused to obey God's word, the lion and the donkey, they obey God's orders to not eat or move, even though it goes against their animal instincts you may not know this but lions don't normally kill something and not eat it actually i think you knew that that was sarcasm donkeys don't normally go play cards with lions they don't sit there and say yeah what's the weather you think the weather's nice donkeys flee at the sight of a lion and yet what do the donkey and lion do god says sit and they sit Nothing in them says to do that. But because God told them to, they obey. And the implication for us, if dumb, wild animals can't get more wild than a lion, can't get more dumb than a donkey, if they're going to obey God, what about us? We're not animals. We're not led by instincts. We have rationality. We have volition. How much more should we obey God's word? Yet, does God really act in judgment like this? I mean, it, isn't that a little, I mean, dare we say, unjust? I mean, maybe we could just say, whoa, whew, kings, that's pretty far in the Old Testament. Thankfully, Jesus has come, mercy. Well, in 1999, sociologist Christian Smith, he began interviewing, giving surveys to 3,000 different teenagers, and he start, he's been following these teenagers, now adults, for many years, and he came across an interesting finding. Though these teens came from all over the U.S., came from many different religious beliefs, they basically all had the same core beliefs. And the same core beliefs can be labeled, at least he labeled them, as moralistic, therapeutic deism. What he meant by that is, these teens all kind of believe that what matters is morality, that what's central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That means being nice, being respectful, be at work on self-improvement, do your best to be successful. What matters is therapy rather than being concerned about things like sin, judgment, forgiveness, truth. What matters is your subjective well-being, feeling good about yourself, getting along with other people. And what do we think about God? Well, deism, not like historic deism, but that they said God's just not really concerned in your day-to-day life. You know, what God wants is for you to be friendly, to like others, be kind. He doesn't really have any interest in maybe how you act sexually or whether you go to church or have some certain beliefs. He just kind of wants us all to be kind to one another. Well, almost 20 years ago, Christian Smith was very prophetically and accurately able to describe where we are today. People want this general sense. Yeah, God exists. But, you know, As long as we're kind, loving people, that's all that matters. And yet, is that what God has revealed about Himself? That may fit what our culture believes, but it doesn't fit God's description here or in the rest of Scripture. God intricately gets involved in this life, even down to the eating habits of lions and the sitting patterns of donkeys. If He says, I don't want you to eat or drink, and you do, then he'll hold you accountable. And this is not just the God of the Old Testament, because the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same. In Acts 5, there's a couple who try to give the impression that they're super spiritual. So they go and sell a piece of property, and then they act like they give all the money to the church. Now, they didn't have to sell the property, and neither did they have to give any of the money. And yet they lied by what they did. And so in Acts 5, 5... Peter, the apostle, calls them out for lying to God, and then says, it says, When Ananias, that's the husband, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The same God who held people accountable in the Old Testament holds them accountable in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 25-29 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they... Referring to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let us Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, the problem is not that God has changed but rather that we have become presumptuous. The presumptuous person expects what they should see as a gift. (coughs) As a person who goes into their friend's house and then opens the fridge and starts making them a sandwich without asking. Well, maybe the friend would be fine with that. Maybe not, but they are presuming, oh, my friend will be okay with this. And we presume on God's grace and His forgiveness. We assume that He owes us forgiveness. And since we've been pretty good, we deserve His grace. R.C. Sproul, in his excellent book, mentioned it earlier, The Holiness of God, writes, Think about that. We deserve grace. It is impossible for anyone, anywhere, anytime to deserve grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. As soon as we talk about deserving something, we are no longer talking about grace We are talking about justice. He then shares this antidote about how we confuse grace and justice. He writes, Your tendency to take grace for granted was driven home to me while teaching college students. I had the assignment of teaching a freshman Old Testament course to 250 students. On the first day of class, I went over the course assignments carefully. This course required three short papers. I explained that they were due on my desk by noon, The first one was due by noon the last day of September. No extensions were to be given. If the paper was not turned on time, the students would receive an F for the assignment. On the last day of September, 25 students stood quaking full of remorse. He writes, I bowed to their pleas for mercy. All right, I said, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. Then came the last day of October. Fifty students came empty-handed. Once more, I relented. I said, okay, but this is the last time. If you're late for the next paper, it will be enough. Is that clear? Oh, yes, Professor, you're terrific. Spontaneously, the class began to sing. We love you, Profs. Oh, yes, we do. I was Mr. Popularity. Can you guess what happened on the last day of November? Right. One hundred students strolled into the lecture hall, utterly Unconcerned. I picked up my lethal black grade book and began taking down names and marking F by their paper assignment. The students reacted with unmitigated fury. They howled in protest, screaming, That's not fair! I looked at one of them. Laverly, you think it's not fair? No, he growled in response. I see. It's justice you want. I seem to recall that you were late with your paper the last time. If you insist upon justice, you'll certainly get it. I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll change your last grade to the F you so richly deserved. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. Because he'd been gracious, they then presume, Oh, he he has to keep being gracious. No, he doesn't. At any moment, we can be just. And why does God, the creator of the universe, have to be gracious or forgive us? If the rules were clearly given, and they were, and we rebelled against them, and we have, then why should we balk when God brings judgment for that rebellion? The fact that God often forbears, and He doesn't often kill someone like He did this prophet, or Ananias and Sapphira, is not because God is unjust, but because He is gracious and forbearing with our sins, hoping that we will repent. You know, even this story is driving home God's justice. Because God didn't say, "Well, Jeroboam, you're going to be held to account." But you know what? This is my guy. This is my prophet. You got a few, you can you can sin a few times. It's okay. Because you've done some really good things for me, so you kind of get it graded on a curve. No. God demands perfect holiness from everyone, even his children, even his servants. There's no exemption clause. There's no special line or anything that you get. You often, when people go on diets, they say, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do this the whole time, so I'm going to have cheat days. And on my cheat day, then I'll kind of make up for, how I was craving all this stuff for six days. And yet, sadly, we sometimes have a spiritual cheat day mentality. Oh, I've been really good. You know, if everyone... I am the kind of Christian dad, speaking hypothetically here, that you should be like. You know, I'm doing all these things, and are these other Christian dads doing this? Nope. Am I working? Am I doing all this stuff? I'm great. So, you know what? I think it's okay if I fill in the blank, binge on this, do that, engage in these thoughts, or whatever it may be. Oh, it's my spiritual cheat day. It's okay. I earned this one. Well, no, don't buy that lie. This story shows all of us, myself included, the seriousness of obeying God's word. And it's serious because God's word is always going to be fulfilled. And we see that at the last point, verses 26 through 32, the fulfillment of God's word. As you can imagine, a story of a donkey and a lion sitting next to a dead body doesn't just kind of knock it told. And so everyone in Bethel soon hear about it. And the prophet in Bethel goes, oh. That, he knows that was the man of God from Judah. And then notice that he describes him as he who broke the word of the Lord. And then he adds that the Lord gave him into the paws of the lion, which tore and killed him. And then he goes off and he finds him now, not under the tree, but on the road. And he brings them back. Now, along with the lion and donkey pointing out that even dumb beasts obey God's word, they also clearly demonstrate that the prophet didn't just have a turn of bad luck. You know, the prophet didn't die because, oh, you know, no one could say, oh, well, that's that part of that road where we kind of been warning people there's lion attacks. So that's what happened. Or, yeah, you know, that's just a weird coincidence. Well, it's no coincidence. It's not bad luck. Only God could cause a donkey to sit next to a lion and for them to do nothing. God is clearly showing my word will be fulfilled. Whether that word is against Jeroboam and Israel to the north, or my word against a prophet from Judah in the south, my word will always be fulfilled. And so the prophet from Bethel takes him back, and he buries him, and he mourns over them. And again, we're kind of at a loss. What is with this prophet from Bethel? Why would he go and lie, which then led to this prophet's death, and then go honor his body and say all these wonderful things about him? He's somewhat of an enigma to us. And yet, maybe he's more like us than we like to admit. Maybe like him, we know a lot of religious things. And we have an air of piety. And yet, when we really want something, well, I got to lie. God forgives. That's all right. I really want to hear this story of what happened against Jeroboam. So yeah, God told me this. You should come back to my house. What's the big deal? And the prophet from Bethel is a warning to us, too. Don't just have an air of spirituality. Don't just be able to say, well, yeah, I'm a man of God, but live it out in all of your life. And so we're being reminded that God's word is clear. It must be obeyed. And God's promises will always be fulfilled. And the prophet even notes that in verse 32, that everything this prophet of Judah said against Jeroboam and the altars in the north will come to pass. Jesus said a similar thing we read part of this earlier for truly i say to you jesus says in matthew 5 until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished and so this story serves as a tragic warning that for those of us who by grace through faith have been saved not of anything we've done we cannot then use that as an excuse to live in sin there's no fathers like in Peter Pan who can say, oh, y'all should take this medicine. It's really good for you, but refuse to take it ourselves. We must heed what is true also. So we must seek holiness, as Hebrews says, which out which no one will see the Lord. Yes, we need to avoid the legalistic, pharisaical mindset that only obeys God begrudgingly, and we we'll have thought, well, I'm better than others because I'm obeying God's word. Well, that's not true. And what we need to see is the goodness of God's commands, that he gave them for us for our good and joy. And so we may find his word, his instructions, not burdensome, but beneficial. And may we live lives of obedience to the Spirit, not because we're trying to grasp God's love, but because God already loves us. And because we know he loves us, He gave us these rules to follow. And knowing that as a good father, he will discipline us when we go astray. Let's pray. Oh Lord, each one of us has the whispering that it's okay this time. We've been good. We've done enough. Lord, help us to fight the lies. May we seek holiness. May we live empowered by Your Son's resurrection power, by the indwelling Spirit to live lives of holiness each day. And Lord, when we do stumble and fall, may we rely on Your grace. May we quickly run back and seek the forgiveness that You give. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.